I hope you love God's Word. I really do. Um, and I hope you love sitting under the preaching of God's Word. And I'm going to tell you something. The Word of God is more important than the messenger. Amen? And uh, I'm happy this morning that I planned this a long time ago, but uh, Brother Wes Fuller is going to preach God's Word for us today out of John's Gospel in chapter 15, so I want to urge you to find your way there, and uh, find your way to John chapter 15, and uh, pray that God will give you ears to hear well what His Spirit would say to us today. Brother Wes, you have your microphone on? Yes, sir. All right, go ahead and make sure you're on. Okay, thank you. Thank you. All right. Good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. I am eager to preach the gospel of the kingdom of our glorious king this morning to you. Before we do, I want to just open in a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless our time together this morning. Father and sovereign God, Lord, Lord, you know, you know our needs. Lord, I ask this morning that you would just set me aside. Lord, that you would cause your spirit to brood among this congregation. Lord, that seeds would be planted, Lord. That a harvest would be reaped to the praise of your glorious grace. Lord, let the people forget me and remember your word. Lord, I must decrease so you can increase. Lord, we pray your blessings upon these people and everyone in the sound of my voice this day, Lord. Speak through me, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as Brother Paul said, today we are going to be in the Gospel of John, verses 1 through 11. And Lynn Ravenhill, Brother Lynn Ravenhill, the old preacher, once said, he said, if, if, he said, he looks at the Gospels as a as, as the, as the t temple or as the tabernacle where, where Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the outer courts and then John is the holy place and then John 17 is the holy of holies. He may have been on to something there. Um, by way of introduction this morning, just really briefly, I want to bring us up to speed because we're not preaching all the way through this book of John. We have to find our context, the context of, of where we're going to land this morning in John 15. But uh, in, in John chapter 13, we'll go back, and that was for the feast of the Passover when they had gathered together in the upper room. Uh, it's where Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. It's where Jesus dismissed Judas, thus cleansing their company. In 14, he, he brings up the role of the Spirit as he begins to, to comfort his disciples as, as he is nearing his departure from his earthly ministry. And then at the end of chapter 14, after he talks about the role of the Spirit, Jesus tells them, let's get up from here and go. 
and they begin to walk. And this is one of the last conversations that we're going to go over this morning that Jesus had with his disciples while on the earth, before his crucifixion. And as he says, let's get up and go from here, and they begin to walk, and he begins to tell this parable of, of the vine and the branches. And as I said, this was one of the last things that he said. This is actually, if you go back to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see that, that in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is where they're walking when they're having this conversation. Right? And in John 17, you get the first half of the prayer, which I believe you get the last few lines in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when he says, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but let your will be done. But the first part of that prayer is in John 17, the high priestly prayer of Christ. But as they're walking along in John 15 this morning, Jesus begins to, to tell this parable. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. This is one of the many I am statements that Jesus has throughout the scriptures. The first I am statement is found in Exodus 3.14 where Moses says, Who shall I tell the people that you are? What is your name? And he says, Tell them that I am. And they knew what he meant by that. He was saying that I am God. I am Yahweh. We see it again in John 14.6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for through me. In John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And then one of my favorites in John 8, 58, if you remember, the Pharisees were saying, our father is Abraham. And he said, Abraham joyed to see my day and, and rejoiced as he saw it. And they said, you're not yet 50 years old. How do you say that, you, that Abraham saw your day? He says, truly, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham was born, I am. And they picked up stones to throw at him because they knew exactly what the language that he was, was giving them there. But here in the first verse, he says, I am the true vine. In comparison or contrast to the, the counterfeit. See, there, throughout the scripture, we see in Ezekiel 15, we see uh, in Genesis, Joseph's vine that went over the wall, right? So there's different types or shadows of the vine throughout scripture, but Jesus says, I am the true vine. And what a great condescension for the son of righteousness, the bright and morning star, to, to compare himself to a, a meager and measly vine. And he did this for a couple of reasons. As we talked about this morning, we talked about several things in the group this morning that, that are in the sermon today. But Jesus originally started teaching in parables to conceal the truth, not to reveal it. Right? That way he could reveal it to who he desired to reveal it to. I think he starts doing that, if I'm not mistaken, about in Matthew 13. He begins to preach in parables. And the majority of those parables are preached that the Word of God can only be disclosed by the Spirit. And that's not the case, I believe, in this parable. I believe in this parable, the Lord Jesus spoke in a parable to reveal the truth, not to conceal it. <clears throat> he wanted to put the cookies on the bottom shelf for the disciples, and for us, for that matter. 
And it was a great demonstration of his love and an exhortation and an assurance that we find here as he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every good garden or every good vineyard starts with good seed. We must plow the ground, but we must first have good seed to put into that ground. And God's vineyard, His church, starts with a perfect seed. And the seed is Christ. You see that in Galatians 3.16. And not only do we have a perfect seed, but we have a perfect vine dresser or a perfect husbandman or a perfect farmer. Our Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5.48 Yes, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and it yields no fruit apart from the Lord. <clears throat> Matthew Henry put it like this. He says, Never was a husbandman so wise, so watchful about his vineyard as God is about his church, which therefore must needs prosper. He says we will prosper because we have perfect seed. The true church of, of the living God will prosper. And this true vine, vine is a spreading plant that, that covers and the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. In verse 2 he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that bears fruit he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Well, we see two promises in this verse. The first promise we see is he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. We see the certain doom of the unfruitful. This, this verse has often been misconstrued as a loophole for barren Christians. I, I, I submit to you today that it is not. Every branch in him bears fruit. We will get to that a, long, a little bit later in around verse 8. But in verse 2, we get this promise of the doom of the unfruitful. They are taken away in justice and kindness to the fruitful, fruit-bearing branches of the vine. They are causing hindrances to the growth of the vine so they are taken away. It says every branch that bears fruit he prunes it so that it will bear more fruit. And we are called to be fruit inspectors. And that's not a popular job. But it's one that I believe we may have fallen short on. I know I've been falling short on fruit inspection because our fruit inspection must first begin with a look in the mirror. We must in inspect our fruit. And then we must inspect the fruit of those who name the name of Christ. The second promise in this verse is the, the greater fruitfulness for the fruitful. It is a reward for the fruit bearing. He says every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it will bear more fruit. 
Pruning is a, is a type of cleansing, or in the case of this analogy that he's given us here in this parable, it's a type of trimming. And each and every one of us have things that need to be pruned out of our life. Notice here that it is God who does the pruning. We don't prune ourselves. He prunes us. And He equips us for forward fruit bearing. For the best of men are at yet best just men. So each and every one of us have this indwelling sin in us, these impurities in us that, that cause us to, to lack and growing and the fruit production that God expects and requires from His children. Now we do have an indwelling sin and impurity in us, but we need to be very careful here that we do not passively embrace that. We do not need to passively embrace the fact that we have indwelling sin in our flesh and create a license for sin. In the same way that we are no longer, once we are truly born again into the kingdom of God, that we are, we're no longer sinners. We don't embrace that title anymore. We are saints. Amen. So we shouldn't embrace this fact that, oh, well, you know, I still have the flesh, so I can, I can just, you know, that's, that's the reason I sin. No, we shouldn't passively embrace that. Amen. But rather, we should earnestly have a desire and a hatred for the sin that is in us and desire that it be removed and hate even the garment that is spotted by the flesh. In verse 3 he says, You are already cleansed because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now there's one cleansing that we, that we see in verse 2. That pruning word can be interpreted cleansing. That's experiential cleansing. That's sanctification. Here in verse 3, he says, You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. See, there is a positional cleansing and an experiential cleansing. There's justification and there's sanctification. You add justification to sanctification, you get salvation. Turn with me, if you will, back a page or so here to John chapter 13. We'll go a little bit more in-depth on what this cleansing looks like. In verse 5 of chapter 13 in John, he says, Then he poured the water in the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with a towel when, which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus said to him, What I do now you do not realize, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him and said, If I do not wash your feet, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And he says, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. So until this point, 
And he dismisses Judas directly after that. Until he dismissed Judas, he could not make that statement that they were all clean. Because he picked 12, but yet one had a demon. One was a thief. And one was a traitor. So we see this. There's two kinds of cleansing here that, that Jesus is talking about. He cleansed their company when he went by his word when he told Judas. He said, what you do, do quickly. And then that company was cleansed. Some of us would probably do good to cleanse our company. Because bad company corrupts good morals. And then there's the, the positional cleansing that we see in Titus 3, 5, and 6 where he says, you were saved not on the, the basis of deeds done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, His great mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Those are the two types of cleansing that are always present in the life of a truly born-again believer. And there's cleansing power in the Word of God. We see that in Ephesians 5, 27, where he encourages or commands the husbands to love their wife as Christ loved the church and to wash them with the water of the Word that they may present them spotless and blameless. In verse 4, we see this word. He says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit in and of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. In the next six verses, this word appears ten times. Abide, abide, abide. To abide in Christ. He says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. The Greek word for abide is minnow. It means to remain or to lodge. It is a verb. It is an action word. It requires action upon a, on, our, on our parts. The noun form of this verb is abode. It means a residence or a dwelling place. To abide is to continue in or to dwell in or to be vitally connected to Christ. And this word generally almost always has reference to the maintenance of fellowship with God in Christ Jesus. Now to be in Christ and to abide in Christ, those are two different things. The title of the sermon today is Fruitful, Fruitless, and unfaithful. So to be in Christ and to abide in Christ is to be fruitful. To be outside of Christ is to be fruitless. And to be in Christ and not to bear fruit is to be unfaithful. So we must we must Strive to produce fruit. We are commanded to produce fruit. But to be in Christ and to abide in Christ are two different things. Once again, it is two sides, as often the case in Christianity, there are two sides to the coin. 
One's positional, one's experiential. To be in union with Christ, to be justified is, is positional. But to be sanctified or to abide in Christ is positional. We have some verses that, that really help us illustrate this. They're parallel verses. The initial act of believing in the scripture is often referred to as coming to God. Right? So in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, it says, Come unto me, all ye who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You will enter in. If you come, you can enter into the rest, which is Christ. In John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. So this word come is often used in conjunction with the initial act of believing. Conversely, the daily or continued activity of faith is abiding. We see that in John 6, 56. We says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I abide in him. Earlier in that in chapter 6, he says, if you do not eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, he said, you have no life in you. This is a daily activity of, of bringing in the bread of life, of drinking in the life-giving water, which is only found in Christ and in His Word. D.A. Carson has an excellent definition here for abiding in Christ. He says, abiding in Christ is a continuous, a continuous dependence upon the vine. A consistent reliance upon Him. It is persistent spiritual imbibing. What does it mean to imbibe? That's an old word. It means to drink in or to soak up or to absorb. And he goes on to say, he says the imagery here is stretched a little when the branches are given the responsibility to remain in the vine. See, our justification is monergistic. That is a big word for meaning it is 100% God and zero man. In other words, if you are truly born again, the only thing you brought to the table for your salvation is the sin that needed cleansing. That's the only thing you brought. That's right. But with our sanctification, it is synergistic. We, we play a role in that. Now it is impossible, which we see here in the latter part of, of verse 4, the impossibility of the Christian life. It is impossible to be sanctified apart from the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Christianity is not a moralistic or uh, religion of rule keeping. There are, there are many representations of the church that function that way. There are many religions that function that way where they're just moralistic rule keeping. But the true Christianity, true biblical Christianity is a spirit driven life. And it is a life of liberty and of freedom. And it is the result of an ontological change. That means a change of your being. So we were 
born dead in our trespasses and sin. That has to change. We have to have the Spirit come and dwell in us. Charles Spurgeon gives a great illustration of this. He says, imagine if I had two plates of food. One right here was filled with just all this garbage and rot and filth that had been out in the sun and spoiled and it was putrid and it was sitting here. And then we had a plate of the finest delicacy sitting right here. And we took a pig and turned him loose through those doors right there. Guess which plate he's going to? He's not going to the steak and lobster. He's going to the garbage, right? But if I could put my hand on that pig while he was in that garbage and change him ontologically, cause him to be a new being, cause him to be a human, he would pull his head out of that garbage and he would probably throw up everything he had been eating and he would run out of here with his head hung in shame because people have no desire to eat garbage. So this Christian life is not a group of rules that you don't want to have to keep, but you got to keep. It's not legalistic. It's not moralistic. Christianity is a change in being where you begin to hate the sin you once loved and you begin to love the sin that you once you once you begin to hate the sin you once loved and love the God you once hated. It's an ontological change. And it is impossible apart from the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Compare Romans 7 and Romans 8. Romans 7. In Romans 7, 23 times the word I is Paul refers to the word I. I, 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 I. And it is a funeral march. It is a funeral procession. But then in Romans 8, we see the word spirit 19 times. That's a wedding rehearsal. Right? Because we have to have the spirit dwelling in us. We must be emptied of ourselves. If we're going to fill this cup up with something other than what's in here, to fill it up, we must first empty it out. Jesus spent three and a half years emptying the disciples that He might fill them on the day of Pentecost. Yes, the Holy Spirit is the divine catalyst that makes the Christian life possible. That's why in Romans 8.8 8, it says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In Romans 8.9 he says, however, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. What a somber word. We see one Spirit Ephesians 4 says there's one hope and the calling, one God, one Spirit, one Lord over all. Now the question was brought up this morning in the D group about Pentecost. What was the difference? Well, I think a lot of it was what Brother Paul said. A lot of it was God's providence, right? That's the way God had predestined and predetermined that things were going to go. But I wonder also how much of that falls on our plate. In Galatians, 
excuse me, in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes down and dwells. There was 120 people in that room. On an average Sunday morning, there's 50, 60 people in here. 40, 50, something like that. Right? There was 3,000 people added in one day. Have we added three people in a year? We have the same Spirit. If indeed the Spirit dwells in us. The Spirit has not evolved or changed. This is the same Spirit that was handed out to the apostles. This should be the same Spirit that is living in you and living in me. I was talking to Brother Paul. I took him to go pick up his van, which was a a work on his sanctification, I believe. Get over there and it still wasn't working. Had to take him back home. But I I was glad to get to spend the time with him. But when we were riding back, I told him, I said, Brother, I just, I don't know. I don't feel myself. I feel so broken. I don't know what it is. He said, well, elaborate. I said, I just, I'm falling short. I know now what it was. The Lord was dealing with me. I've been in this text for three weeks. He's dealing with me. He said, this is the same Spirit. What are you doing with this? What are you doing with this in your home and with your children? It's the same Spirit. In the, at the end of verse, uh, in verse 5 here, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This word, much fruit. We know that it could be 30, it could be 60, or it could be 100. But nowhere in the Scripture does it provide for zero fruit in the life of a believer. Is fruit bearing a reality in your life? And are you maturing in Christ? You know, when we plant a plant in the springtime, the tomatoes don't, don't start popping off the vine right away. That, that plant has to mature. Are you maturing in Christ? Spiritual maturity is not an option. It's an inevitable outcome. I remember as a young believer walking into a small Pentecostal church, I was zealous and on fire for the Lord and all those little old ladies looked at me and they said, oh, he's going to be a preacher. I think that happens when we see somebody that is stirred up and on fire for God. And we've sat and warmed a pew for 30 years and we don't know basic, foundational, biblical Christianity. And it is not manifesting itself in our lives. How long would you prune a pine tree before you thought that I sold you a bill of goods when I told you it was an apple tree? We must cultivate. We must cultivate this fruit bearing in our lives. Biblical Christianity is never passive. It is always a zealous application of the truth. And let me tell you something. Wisdom was not born with me. It was not born with you. We must get into God's Word. We must abide in Him. For we we live in a world that is a minefield. And this book right here 
is our map. It is a light unto our feet. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and training in righteousness. That the man of God be adequate and equipped for every good work. For the woman of God. For not the little boys and for the little girls. We don't send little boys off to war. We send men to war. God doesn't want infants. He wants an infantry. Sadly, we don't want battles. We want a bottle. It says the Word of God will equip you for every good work. This Word is inerrant, infallible, and sufficient for every aspect of your life. Fruit bearing manifests itself. What is he talking about here? He's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But it's more than that. Those produce manifestations in our lives. Men, have you, have you looked in the Word of God to see what the Word of God says about how you should love your wife? Have you studied what that looks like? Have you read? I can tell you some really good commentators to help you down the right path on that. Have you, have you looked to see what it means to love your wife as Christ loved the church? Have you put a study into that? This is basic Christianity. If we are Christians, we need to start with ourselves. Right? Men, have you looked at what managing your household well looks like that we hear in 1 Timothy 3? Or is your house a wreck? Is that fruit of the Spirit if it is? Are your children obedient? Do we have obedient children? Men, that's your job. And the Word of God, it says right here, will adequately equip you to every good deed. Does that mean that your children are going to be saved because you, you, you parent them biblically with the Gospels? Absolutely not. But there will be manifestations of their obedience while they are under your rule. And they may go buck wild and crazy when they get out from under your rule. Right? Often the times that happens. But it's not about what you're doing. It's about being obedient to Christ. He's given us this handbook on how to govern our homes and how to govern our lives. We need men that will stand up and be men in an age of boys who shave. Women, have you studied Proverbs 31 and what it means to be a biblical woman? This is the foundation building block of the kingdom. Men, your homes. Women, your homes, your, the raising of your children. Women, have you looked in Ephesians and done a, done a study or, or researched uh, sermons by, by qualified elders and preachers? on what it looks like to respect and submit to your husband. Do you know, have you studied Titus 2, ladies, to see what it means to be reverent, sensible, and pure 
and obedient to your husbands. What it means to have a gentle and quiet spirit. These are true manifestations of walking in the Spirit for born-again believers, and they are foundational. You have to start at the bottom and work your way up. There's churches all around here that are doing, they have infants in Christ that are ready for nothing but the milk, and they're teaching them eschatology. They're doing uh, biblical prophecy classes. To people that don't know how to love their wives or how to respect or obey their husband or how to raise their children. Men, the greatest thing you can ever do for your children is to love their mother. And wives, the greatest thing you can ever do for your children is to obey your husband. That's what the Word of God says. This Spirit manifests itself in our life. Let's move on. Verse 6, he says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch, and it dries up, and they gather them, and they cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Here we see the worthlessness of the dried up branches. These branches that have been depleted of the sap, which were never really connected to the true vine. And they're only good for burning. Yes, separated from Christ, merit, we can have no justification. And separated from His Spirit, we will have no sanctification. We need that life-giving sap of abiding in Christ. In verse 7, He says, If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I was trying to gauge which one's the most popular. I think this is probably the second most popular verse for the unconverted person. Right? The first one is judge not lest you be judged. Everybody knows that. You see it all over Facebook, judge not. But I see this one all over Facebook too. And all over social media. And I hear this all the time. Ask whatever you wish to be done for you. Let me tell you unequivocally, God did not write a, sign a blank check and let you go to the mall. Okay, that's not what this scripture means. That is a gross twisting and manipulation of this scripture. And many love God because God gives, and God does give. But that's not the question. I would be very afraid if you only love God because what He gives you. You've got to get to the point where you love God for God. And if He ever does one more thing for you, you make up in your mind that you're going to serve Him anyway. I live to be a, a 88 years old and serve God the rest of my life and die and go to a devil's hell. It'll be worth it. We've got to get to that point. Yeah, many love God because He gives, but let me tell you something. Piety is not gauged by possessions. Many of God's choicest saints barely have a shirt on their back. And I would submit to you that the reason the church in America is so weak is because it is so rich. And prayer here 
is not a, a way of manipulating. We get prayer all mixed up. Say, well, why do you pray? I gave Austin a book this morning on the sovereignty of God. He's got an awesome section in it on the sovereignty of God in prayer. If anyone else would like to have one, you let me know. I'll order some more for next month. But it deals with sovereignty of God in every aspect. But it deals with the sovereignty of God in prayer. See, prayer is not us manipulating God into our will. But rather, it is us submitting to God that our wills may be conformed to His will. That's what true prayer is. And John Piper says that without personal communion with God in prayer, we will not really know Him, but only know about Him. It must be a reality in your life. You must know Him, and He must know you. There are two halves to this text in verse 7. And this explains what's being said here. For those who have heard, just ask whatever you want and God will do it for you. So there's two halves here. In the, the first half of this text, it says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you. There's the condition for the second half. Then you may ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The requirement or condition for powerful prayer is that we must abide in Him and His Word must abide in us. Verse 8, he says, And in this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so you prove to be my disciples. We just started going. We did the catechism questions here through the D groups. Awesome catechism for the children. Some of us are going back through those again. We started doing the, uh, the shorter catechism with Judah. I modify some of the answers because they're a little advanced. But it's good for all of us to go through these basic foundational Christian truths. But question one in the shorter catechism of the 1689 London Baptist Confession is this. It says, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God. That's what we're commanded to do here. He says, in this my, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So this fruit bearing is the purpose for which you were created. You were created to bear fruit of righteousness unto God the Father. And he says on the back end of that, he said, so you prove to be my disciples. We talked about this in the degree this morning as well. Disciples are not special forces Christians. Disciples are not just pastors and teachers and evangelists. Every person that has truly been born again is a disciple. And disciples bearing fruit, then you need to examine yourself to see if you're truly a disciple. Verse 9, he says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You know, on the face of this, it looks like that there's a prerequisite of completely keeping the commandments to abide in the love of God. And I'm here to tell you, that's not what it's saying. It's not as much a prerequisite as it is the evidence. If you're abiding in the love of God, you won't keep the commandments perfectly, but you will have a desire to embrace and a striving after perfection, a striving after a, a life of holiness and righteousness that is pleasing to God. Psalm 1 says, Blesses the man who does not sit in the seat of the scoffer, but says his delight is in the law of the Lord. You delight in the law of the Lord. Is God's law a delight to you? And ultimately what's being said here, it says, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Uh, Christ here is encouraging us that are in Christ as he was encouraging the disciples here. That he loves them. He loves them. And he's encouraging them to abide in his love. And that if they abide in his love and they keep the commandments, if they strive after, if they have this this change in them that they, they desire holiness and they, they strive after the keeping of the law of God, that they will abide in His Father's love as well. The love of God is exclusively available in Christ Jesus. And I think we've got that twisted in this day and time. Just like we believe that, that the only qualification to go to heaven is that we must die. We think the only qualification to be loved by God is to be born. No, the qualification to be loved by God is you must be born again. And the scripture that backs that up over and over and over. We tell people that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. But God's word says, cursed is he who does not confirm the, to the words of this law by keeping all of them. So if you want to tap into God's love, it must be tapped in through the only mediator, Christ Jesus. His love is exclusively for Him and those that are in Him. Now there is a, there's a type of love, a love of benevolence that is seen upon the just and the unjust. The rain falls upon the just and the unjust. You say, well, that's God's love. It's a love of benevolence. In His providence, He has bestowed upon you a common grace. And some of that common grace looks really good when we see some of the most godless people apparently being so successful 
But I tell you what, God's just fattening their heart for the slaughter. They love their things and they don't love God. Man can't love, can't serve two masters. In verse 11. He says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. We need to understand there's a, there's a difference. I think we get definitions wrong. There's a difference between happiness and between joy. Happiness has to do with your circumstances. Joy comes from the Lord. Worldlings, pagans, can enjoy happiness for a season. But only obedient Christians can truly embrace and enjoy the joy of our God and Savior. That doesn't mean that we cannot experience sadness in different times of our life because we can. We can. But weeping lasts for the, morn, for the night. But joy comes in the morning. If you do not have joy in your life, take a look at your life. I guarantee you that your fellowship with the Lord Jesus, your abiding in Him is broken somewhere. How much time do you spend in His Word? How much time do you spend in prayer? I'm not talking about a 15-minute prayer time. I commend you if that's what you do. But it says that this word should be on our lips and in our mouths when we rise up and when we lie down and when we walk about and we rise up to play. At all times, this word should ever be upon us. That's truly abiding in Christ. I will never forget it. I had a memory for a lifetime. A very convicting memory for a lifetime. This past year at the G3 conference. And I'll pass that conviction on to y'all. Brother Paul Washer was standing up preaching. And he said, I understand they have this thing that you have that monitors your screen time. Says, I challenge you to compare your time in prayer to your time on Facebook. And then I, I promise you, it could have just been me and him in the room. He cut his head to the to the section we were sitting at. Like he looked just at me. And he said, Son, get off of Facebook and get on your knees. I challenge each and every one of you to to see it. What are you abiding in? Are you abiding in social media? Are you abiding in your work? Is that, what, is that what's consuming your time? Are you abiding in Christ? Because this is where our joy is going to come from. Our joy ought not to be fitful and occasional. It ought to be constant. And it ought to be full. Because our joy does not come from ourselves. And the sooner we realize that, the more joy we're going to have. Right? Our joy doesn't come from our performance. Our joy comes from Christ's finished work. 
And the more we can, we can seek our roots down into that gospel, down into these precious promises, the more our joy will be made full. How do you think Paul and Silas, as they, they lay beaten and bloodied in a Philippian jail, can write to us in Philippians 4 and say, Rejoice in the Lord. I say again, rejoice always as they sang hymns. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ of the first century church went off to crosses singing hymns of praise, honored to be martyred for their God and King. Their joy was full because their joy did not come from their circumstances. Their joy did not come from their situations. Their joy came from what they knew and not how they felt. The apostle in Philippians 4, 4 gives us the command. And the king here in John 15 gives us the way. If you want your joy to be full, you need to be abiding in Christ and abiding in prayer and having intimate fellowship with Him. And out of the overflow of that abiding in Christ, abiding in His Word, abiding in prayer, will reap copious amounts of fruit in your life. And there's two spheres of people in this room. There's those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. There's fruitful, fruitless, and unfaithful. question you need to ask yourself is how long can you be unfaithful before you have to be honest with yourself and just say I'm fruitless how long can you be unfruitful before you say I'm not in justification I'm in condemnation I'm not in Christ but I'm in Adam and I need to repent of my sins and I need to believe into the Lord Jesus Christ oh I'm certain there's some here today that are outside of Christ and I would to God that the Spirit of God would quicken you to life. That you would repent. That you would turn from your sin. For there is one mediator between God and man. And you need reconciliation. This is the purpose for which you were created. Was to serve God and to bear fruit to His glorious kingdom. You can't do so apart from the new birth. You must be born again. You need to believe upon the virgin-born Messiah who became a curse for us, who kept the law for us and bore the sins on that cross of every person who would ever believe in Him. And He was dead, but now He's alive forevermore. Because on the third day, He resurrected from that grave that any who would call upon the name of Him would be saved. Amen. Seek the Lord while He can be found. Call on Him while He's near. This life is but a vapor. And brothers and sisters in Christ that are here today, that have truly been born again, this, this Scripture brought me to repentance. It brought me to brokenness. Because I'm not being the husband that God's called me to be. 
I'm not being the father. I'm not doing right by these children the way that I should. And I need to be in a more closer, intimate relationship with Christ. But my prayer is for you today that we will lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily besets us and run the race with endurance, fixing our eyes upon Christ Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross and despised the shame and is seated down at the right hand of God the Father where He is making all His enemies a footstool for His feet. There is a kingdom and there is a king. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some of us will do that in grace and mercy, and I pray to God that that would be each and every person here. But others of us will do that in wrath and justice. But your knee will bow Amen. to King Jesus. Amen. May He bless this word.